I think that one of the worst policies is when people say, well, you're doing an experiment. What are you going to find out? Where is this going to lead? If I knew where it was going to lead, I wouldn't have to do it. That was the voice of celebrated US scientist Dr. Lawrence Rocks, describing the basis for some of his work over the past 50 years on environmental issues. I'm Chris Biddle, and welcome to episode 49 of Inside AgriTurf. Now, the word energy is on everybody's lips at the moment. Energy required for manufacturing, transport, for our homes and for pretty well every aspect of daily living. Yet energy, in many of its guises, is being shown to have a long-term detrimental impact on the planet. We are on the cusp of COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, at which nations are expected to move forward urgently with the emission targets set by the Paris Agreement in 2015. There is so much sound and fury, debate and disagreement, protest and procrastination about the whole environmental picture that I thought I would bring you the views of someone who has been at the very heart of finding solutions to climate change for over half a century, with particular reference to agriculture and food production. Now, later in this episode, I'm going to be joined by Charlie Nicklin and Paul Hemingway, the CEO and President, respectively, of the Institution of Agricultural Engineers, IAGRI, with their reflections on Dr. Rock's comments, and who will provide a preview of the very timely 2021 IAGRI conference taking place on the 3rd of November with its theme of Future Fuels in Agriculture. But back to Dr. Lawrence Rocks, who is now in his late 80s, and he wrote a book, The Energy Crisis, in 1973, when the oil-producing nations embargoed supplies to countries seen to be supporting Israel after the Yom Kippur War. He was also instrumental in establishing the U.S. Department of Energy under President Carter. This interview is part of an episode hosted by Anthony Scaramucci for his regular Mooch FM podcast series. Anthony was the White House Director of Communications in 2017 before he fell out rather spectacularly with President Trump. And I'm extremely grateful to him for letting me use this edited version of that interview with Dr. Rocks. So firstly... I wondered how Dr. Rocks came to write his book on the energy crisis all those years ago. Well, at that time, I was uh, fairly young. I was in my late 30s. And um, I saw that the uh, environment was a major issue uh, and energy was a big part of it. And it just seemed to me that um, the many energy tied together, many things like agriculture, the automobile, tutorial committee, and this led me to uh, do some uh, speaking with the Department of Interior. And uh, gradually, one thing led to another over the years. It took about eight years from the time I started writing and speaking until Jimmy Carter's administration established the Department of Energy, which I, I thought would be a center for 
uh, information about various forms of energy. And it turned out that that's the case. I do believe that our Department of Energy is a repository of enormous amounts of information on any aspect of energy you could think of, from solar to nuclear to wind, and how that plays out in the economic scene is another matter. But in terms of information, that's the place to go. So tell me, are we going to be able to fix the climate problem? I don't know. It's a very tricky one. Um, I believe I, I believe firmly that one can prove that most of the climate-changing gases, methane and CO2, come directly or indirectly from eating, agriculture, population, people. Um, it's not widely understood. But there was a study way back in uh, 1972 called Input-Output Economics, pioneered by Vasily Leontief, and he won a Nobel Prize in economics the next year. But I saw his work before it was he actually received the Nobel Prize, and it struck me that the inputs to agriculture will prove that most of the climate-changing gases are somehow related, directly or indirectly, to food production and consumption. For example, uh, methane gas reacted with steam to make hydrogen, to make ammonia, to make fertilizers, farm equipment, the uh, coal to make the coke, to make the steel, to make the tractor, diesel fuel for the tractors, electricity on the farm, railroad distribution of food, if you trace it all down, the lion's share of our climate alteration is due to eating, sustaining life forms. So it's going to be pretty difficult to uh, solve that uh, immediately. But I think that uh, what we need now is more information about exactly what's happening, which is why I propose Weather Station Moon. It's become a trademark concept. And my idea is that a weather station, a telescope really on the moon, will give us a big picture of the uh, climate changes on Earth. First of all, overall temperature, as well as temperature in specific parts of the Earth. And more importantly, cloud cover. Is it getting bigger? What's its composition? I think that if the Earth is developing high altitude ice crystal clouds, the weather will get cooler. If on the other hand, that's not the case, then the weather will get warmer. So for climate change, I think we need some more tools like the doctor needs a stethoscope and a thermometer. My weather station moon is not policy, it's an experiment. We need to get better data on the temperature changes on various parts of the earth and especially the cloud cover changes. In recent times, uh, we, we've seen an increase in, shall we call them, weather events, flooding, uh, sea surges, forest fires. Uh, are these going to only increase in the future? Well, I think the weather is going to be very unstable. And uh, if we look at even in written history, the weather has changed. In, in 1600 to 1640, Europe was in a little ice age. That was long before the Industrial Revolution. What caused it? Uh, it's debatable. Uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, North Africa was the granary of Rome. There were wheat fields. Uh, 
North Africa has dried out. Uh, if you look at tree rings from uh, redwood trees in the far west, you can uh, trace their witness, their thickness and witness what happened for the last uh, two or 3,000 years. Uh, California, what we call California today, has always had erratic weather. It's erratic now, and I do believe global warming is contributing, but it's contributing in a very subtle way, I think. Uh, the earth is getting warmer. There's more water evaporation. There's more cloud cover. Weather patterns are changing. Uh, for example, in North Atlantic, as in the days when the Vikings came to North America, uh, the sea must have been calm. Uh, now it's stormy. If the Gulf Stream changes direction, uh, England will go back to what it used to be, locked in an ice age. So instability is what we're facing. The, the average temperature of the earth is increasing, but by a small amount. But the weather itself is becoming very unstable. And I think that's the problem, how to monitor it and see what's happening. Now, we accept that uh, increases in methane causes many of the environmental issues we face today. So is that fixable? It's fixable if we uh, change agriculture slightly, but people get the wrong impression. They think, oh, we've got to cut out meat. No, you don't have to cut it out. It's just that certain types of agriculture have to be reduced and other forms increased. For example, growing corn to make alcohol, to feed automobiles is really an agricultural disaster. That program has got to be stopped. Tell us why. Because the input to growing corn and making alcohol is greater than the output of energy you get. Corn alcohol is not an energy source. It's an energy consumer. The agricultural inputs uh, are far, in terms of energy are far greater than what you get out. And also, there's a methane problem with uh, any type of fermentation chemistry, which is what has to happen with the corn. So we're not only using more energy than we're getting out, but we're producing more methane, which on a molecular basis is 20 times worse than CO2. So what does the energy of the future look like? I think without nuclear, we're not going to make it. And 50 years ago, I argued in the book, The Energy Crisis, that we need nuclear power. Uh, a lot of people worry about it. I, everybody worries about it. We need to develop it in a safe way. And I think a fundamental error was made 50 years ago by making nuclear power plants 1,000 megawatts, too big. The cooling problem is too great. That's why we had Three Mile Island. That's why Fukushima melted down, Chernobyl melted down. Let us have nuclear power the way we have it in the Navy limited to 300 megawatt plants. The utilities will say, well, that's not economic. Well, it's not economic when your plant melts down. And uh, the Navy has had uh, hundreds of ships over 50 years. There's no meltdown problem. Nuclear power will be reliable and it will take us for centuries. And it will be a great supplement to wind. So, my suggestion is let us go nuclear, 
small nuclear power plants while we build a North American offshore wind alliance. The wind is a great source of energy, but it's erratic. And if you want to get reliability, you need a big area. The biggest area is offshore and from Canada to Mexico. So if we team up Mexico, the US and Canada, off our east and west coast for wind power, we can, I wouldn't say solve the problem, but it would go a long way in, solve, in helping to reduce climate change. But that system itself will take time to build and the wind will still be somewhat erratic. You gotta have reliable electricity. Now, you've been active in the environmental and science field for over 50 years. So what advice would you give to the scientists of the future? Well, I think I've always said that science is a method, not a subject. And I, I would like to see young people. This is why I got involved with the TOPS. I would like to see young people understand the essence of science, curiosity. Everybody has curiosity, whether you attend a university or not. Imagination, everybody has imagination, whether you get an advanced degree or not. Objectivity, everybody can be objective when the chips are down. So the three components of science, curiosity, could be about anything. Uh, Objectivity, could be applied to any subject. Imagination, to do an experiment, could be applied to anything. So I think, that science being a method, not a subject, it will always be expanding. And nobody can predict what's going to happen. When I first started at uh, Long Island University, nobody predicted genetic science. Nobody predicted the computer. All of a sudden, in the early 70s, uh, at Cold Spring Harbor, Experiments were done with bacteriophages, the enzymes from them, cutting and snick, uh, snipping genes together. Uh, Intel put uh, computed, put uh, uh, transistors on a chip. I think it was 7,000, the first one. And I remember it at faculty in the lunchroom, we were talking about computers that are going to go from 30 feet by 50 feet as ENIAC in World War II, weighing 30 tons to a desktop computer. And some people said, oh, you're crazy. Other people said, no, it's coming. So nobody can predict what we, what science will discover, the method called science will discover. It's totally unpredictable. And I think that one of the worst policies is when people say, well, you're doing an experiment. What are you going to find out? Where is this going to lead? If I knew where it was going to lead, I wouldn't have to do it. And that's my attitude toward weather station moon. Uh, it's a weather station moon is not a policy. We need information, especially ultraviolet light reflection from the earth. There's a very simple illustration of that. Many times at night, we look up at the moon and it's turning orange. It's due to high ice crystals in the sky. Sure enough, bad weather is coming. Well, the reverse of a yellow moon is if you look at the earth from afar, if it's reflecting more blue light, well, now you're getting more ice crystals up there and that will affect the weather. And maybe if we could monitor that, there'd be a way to at least predict where extreme weather would occur. 
Right now, we're just caught by surprise. The hurricane caught us by surprise. The wildfires in California caught us by surprise because the weather is becoming more tricky. Uh, cloudier earth, windier earth. In, in fact, uh, an increase in wind has actually been measured, uh, oddly enough, in uh, Norway. In the last 10 years, the wind speed has picked up, I think, 15%. Uh, maybe that's true for the whole earth, maybe not. But we ought to find out by looking at the earth from afar. So where are we going? Uh, human curiosity, human imagination. Nobody knows where we're going. Nobody could, could ever predict all the amazing things that have happened. I certainly hope you found that of interest. Weather Station Moon sounds like the stuff of science fiction novels, but we actually landed men on the moon four years before Dr. Rock's book of 1973. So surely we could and should have used that opportunity to further science in a much more practical way than we have. So thank you again to Anthony Scaramucci for letting me use that extract of Dr. Rock's from his podcast, Mooch FM. It was taken from episode 54 on the 3rd of September, uh, from where there was actually a very appropriate link to my next item. Uh, following Dr. Rock's on the podcast was an interview with Jenny Kavanagh, Chief Strategy Officer of Cranfield Aerospace Solutions, an immediate neighbour of the Institution of Agricultural Engineers, also headquartered at Cranfield University. Her company are aiming to make zero emission flights viable by 2025. So welcome to IAGRI CEO Charlie Nicklin and current President Paul Hemingway. Uh, so Paul, initially, what are your thoughts on Dr. Rox's comments? I mean, Dr. Rock's clearly a man who spent his whole life in this energy field, and and so I'm not I'm not going to try and deny or, or question the accuracy of what he's saying. I think he was slightly harsh in relation to the uh, the significance of uh, agriculture as as a contributor to climate change. Um, clearly, agriculture, you know, does contribute. We do emit carbon and CO two. Uh, but agriculture has only had to respond to the growth of global population. Ultimately, people need to eat. Feed the world. We're now, we're now sitting at a, a global population of around 8 billion people, which is forecast to grow to about 9 million by 2040 and yeah. probably plateau out to 10 or 11 yeah. over yeah. the next 30, 40 years. Yeah. So yeah. Feeding, feeding the world is not going away anytime soon. Um, and, and so, yes, agriculture has got its issues to address. But uh, I don't think it's, it's um, guilty as charged, really, in, in, to the extent which, which he would uh, portray. Uh, Charlie, did you have a chance to have a, have a quick listen? Yeah, yeah, no, really, really interesting. You know, I agree with sort of what, you know, what Paul said, um, putting the blame at the door of agriculture's, you know, that <laughs> they're there to produce food. So the, the ethanol thing is interesting. The amount, and if the calculations are right, you know, you use more energy to create it than than it does you get out of it you know it's 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 not sustainable is it data's always crave engineers always crave data you know and if you can't measure it you, there's no point talking about it so as bizarre as it seems putting a, a weather station on the moon well if that's what they need to do then 
why not? You know, it, sure. if you can study the climatic effects and, and predict stuff better, then then that's got to be a good thing, hasn't it? I was, I was just going to say, I suppose, you know, I'm a, I'm a sort of practical person. I said, there's, there's a lot of stuff that can be done, you know, now, though, isn't it, that, that we just need to get on with, you know, it's, you know, it's things like stop producing plastic waste, you know, recycle more. There's some pretty basic stuff we need to do as a, as a, as a population. And, and, and eat funny sized potatoes and, uh, and, yeah. and so on. Food yeah, I mean, waste. Food waste is, is bonkers, isn't it? Mm. Wasting food is crazy. And when you look at it, I think the fashion industry actually uh, mm. has a more of a carbon f- footprint than agriculture does, and yet it's uh, hardly ever talked about, and it doesn't feed people. So now, given the current news agenda, uh, you, I'd say you, the Institute of Agricultural Engineers, have got a conference coming up on which... Uh, very timely it's it's aimed at uh, energy perhaps before we start you could just give me the broad details of what what the conference is all about charlie yeah absolutely um so it's at 10 a.m on the 3rd of november we're going to be talking about future fuels in agriculture it's not just about machine fuel it's also about you know getting fuels from the land you know things like capturing methane from waste slurry and, and that sort of stuff so should be a real diverse interesting conference we've got some great speed the, the diesel engine is going to be completely uh phased out and particularly europe might be unable to buy one i mean i've been in the field for a long long time what, what do you think paul i think probably we need to stop talking about diesel engines and talk about internal combustion engines you know diesel everybody it isn't very many years ago since john prescott was telling everybody to go out and buy a diesel car this was the thing to do and now all of a sudden diesel as a brand has lost its credibility if you like i mean the technology clearly is well developed a massive amount of engineering has gone in to trying to ensure that the emissions from diesel engines today are as low as possible but in terms of overall efficiency ultimately the diesel cycle is king and auto diesel decided that quite some time ago. So you can't see the efficiency getting greater. But in terms of that hardware package, the potential to run that type of configuration with an alternative fuel, and, and clearly, you know, JCB today is looking very, very closely at hydrogen as a potential, does offer opportunities. And ultimately, you end up with zero emissions, nothing other than water coming out of the exhaust pipe so none of this process is new i mean this this work to reduce emissions and indeed uh, noise pollution as well has been going on for years and years hasn't it yeah it has but ultimately what what we've got within our industry and the haulage industry in terms of the, the lorries that are on the road has got exactly the same problem is that they've got quite large engines doing heavy work you know with quite a high fuel throughput in the course of a working day and that sort of defines that you've got to have quite a high density fuel if you're going to continue to use that IC engine package uh, and not go to something totally different like a, a hydrogen fuel cell, which is immensely complex at the moment, extremely expensive and huge engineering issues about mm. getting rid of generated heat and so on. If you're mm. going to stick with this IC engine, which is basically an engine out, engine in replacement for, for the diesel engine of today. You know, there aren't too many options of, of, of what you can use as a fuel. And, and hydrogen at the moment would appear to be the front runner. Indeed. So, Charlie, um, your opening speaker, uh, and I guess she will set the tone for the conference in, in many ways, is Caroline Drummond from LEAF, 
uh, linking environment and farming organization. Um, how, how effective are groups like LEAF in informing and educating politicians and the public, of course, uh, about the environmental issues surrounding food and food production? And, and indeed, is there enough joined up thinking going on within the agri sector, shall I call it, about how to uh, achieve the carbon reduction tar- targets in agriculture? I guess there could always be more. I mean, the, the two organisations that, that I see, you know, through my daily work that are the most vocal are the NFU uh, and, and LEAF. Uh, and they're, they're both working towards the same goal, you know, about you know carbon zero and informing the public. Yeah, so, you know, I suppose it could be more effective, but, you know, it, it's got to be talked about, it's got to be discussed, and there's got to be a plan there. I mean, there was a big article in the in the Sunday Times yesterday uh, on a feature on Minette Batters, and she seems to have the bit between her teeth and in mm. terms of where the politicians are. So, just hopefully, there the agricultural sector does include an awful lot of uh, interested parties, doesn't it? And and so, do you, Charlie, to get involved uh, with more people than just the NFU and Leaf? I don't get involved in that. I mean, it's great we've got Caroline speaking. We've also got John Swain from the NFU speaking at the conference as well. So there's the two organisations there that we talked about. So that'd be really interesting. I suppose, yeah, through through the discussions I get involved with the with the National Engineering Policy Centre, there's a lot of discussion around COP26 and and some of the big institutions uh, doing stuff to support that. We, we've supported... Uh, the IKME with some information on on agriculture and what's going on in the world of agriculture to reduce carbon. So so we're sort of collaborating where we can on that. Uh, do, do we within agriculture and agricultural engineering uh, le- learn much from other organisations who have similar similar problems, similar issues? I suppose we whether we learn some, I don't know. I suppose there's a lot of there's a lot of discussions in a lot of different institutions go on about their sector. So the chemi- you know, that obviously. The the, uh, the nuclear institute is is a is a really interesting one to listen in on you know the building you know is a, is another interesting one because yeah they're talking about domestic heating and so it's really some really interesting discussions yeah yeah well a lot of it you know and as we know agricultural engineering is is a big convergence of disciplines and we we draw all these in, things in from other from other disciplines. Paul the the conference content seems to suggest that. And you've mentioned it already, uh, hydrogen or methane power is the way forward. And of course, I mean, there are electric machines, but they're generally on smaller units, smaller tractors, smaller earth moving uh, equipment. Are there still more questions and answers of what may well become the the gold standard for fueling your in the IC units? I mean, I'm not I'm not sure that there are any magic fuels out there. I mean, you know, engine technology has been around for let's say, you know, 130, 40 years now, I don't think that there is a gold standard or a magic bullet that's going to come along and solve everybody's problem. I think, you know, we understand the technologies involved in in generation of power in a whole variety of different ways. Uh, and ultimately, as I say, the challenge for agriculture is, is, is the scale of the industry. And these days, you know, the scale of the equipment that's used in that industry, and, and so the you know the level of power output that's required to work long hours during you know increasingly condensed seasons yes. and, and clearly with a with the type of weather patterns that we're, we're experiencing at the moment you know yes. weather global hap- warming yeah. is you know really 
cranking up the temperature, and that's going to be the critical factor. But what we are experiencing globally is more extreme weather. Sure. You know, whether it's forest fires, whether it's floods, whether it's high winds, you know, we are seeing this pretty well all the way around the globe. You know, who would have imagined that Germany was going to see beautiful villages mm. totally swept away mm. with a flood in basically the middle of summer? And it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. And, and of course, agriculture does have within its midst the ability to produce power, of course, uh, anaerobic digesters and, and the like. Uh, um, I saw the units down at White Farms, the cheese maker down in, in Somerset. Uh, who, who actually power the local town, which I was at school at, um, and also produce um, a, a power some of the uh, transport for Sainsbury's, one of their customers. So it has it with, within its own sphere, the ability to produce power as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And probably the, you know, perversely, the changes in the industry in that now, you know, there are very many dairy dairy farms today, you know, milking many hundreds of cows. In, in a single unit rather than, you know, you wind back to 40 years and, and you were talking about 60 to 80 cow herds being being very, very commonplace. Today, 600 to 800 or 800 to 1500 is not at all unusual. Sure. Now, if you've got that scale of milking going on, you're generating, you know, 41 litres of slurry per cow, yeah. a number that springs to mind from my past. <laughs> and that's an awful lot of slurry when, when you multiply it up even if the herd goes out to graze in the summer, which a lot of the big herds don't. So you have got a lot of raw material to deal with. Yeah. Uh, and obviously is feedstock for these um, for these digesters. And yeah. that technology, again, you know, I can remember as a, a very young engineer going to Stoke Bardolf, the Nottingham Sewage Treatment Works, that were running anaerobic digesters, you know, a massive anaerobic digester in, in the late 1970s. Mm. So this is not new technology. There are newcomers coming just, into the Just building. evolving all the time. It's just evolving uh, all the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Charlie, um, there's no mention specifically of robotics within the, the program. Is that just simply another uh, another, another issue? Obviously, powering robotics comes into well, it. It, it. It's completely the same. It's uh, At the end of the day, um, any any machine is going to need some form of propulsion system. So if, you, if, you, if you're talking about a small robotic machine, then... You know, electric battery power is perfectly acceptable. If you're talking about a large autonomous robot, uh, robotic machine, i.e. an autonomous tractor, then it's probably going to have a hydrogen engine or something like that up front. Depends on, you know, what, you know the, the equivalent size machine. Um, you know, if you, if you look at like the, the Agro Intelli robotic product, that's got a diesel engine in it at the moment, but you could see that with a battery pack on it and a battery. Um, likewise, the, the Agex Seed, uh, large autonomous tractor that class are getting involved with, you know, that that again, you can see that with a hydrogen engine or, or even a tethered cable, you know, or yeah. so it's, it just needs a propulsion system at the end of the day. It does seem that uh, one of the big uh, conundrums these days is how we uh, create sustainable farming practices to improve food self sufficiency in this country. And I think the aim is 60%. Uh, versus the re rewilding the countryside. I, I think we probably talked about that for, 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 for a whole lot more. But uh, do you see it as a, as a real issue that uh, farming uh, farmers are grappling with at the moment or, or maybe it is outside their control, uh, Paul? No, it's not outside their control. I mean, there's certainly a huge push towards sustain, more sustainable farming. You know, they, since Brexit, obviously, the replacement 
of the single farm payment scheme by the Environmental Land Management, the ELM scheme, which every farmer today, you know, if they want to retain any support from the government for their activity, they're going to have to demonstrate that they're doing stuff differently, mm. whether they're improving their efficiency or, or whether they're becoming more sustainable and more environmentally aware. Um, so it's absolutely on the agenda. But but I think, you know, we do live in a relatively small land area, relatively high density population country. And the opportunities for true rewilding, you know, basically you take what it means is that you're taking land out of agricultural production and, mm. and, and getting zero food from that. Um, and and so, yeah, to in my view, they are probably uh, mutually exclusive. You need to do one or the other. Yeah, yeah. And as the old saying goes, they're not making land any longer. <laughs> no, they're not. And they're not uh, anymore. Once, once yeah, it's gone, it's gone. Yes, that's you right. Know, you've got this, you've got this, you know, the, the population's increasing, the land mass is reducing. You know, if we keep building on it, you know, we can't keep chopping down rainforests everywhere. So you've got to make more food with, with less land. So rewilding it, yeah. you know, it, 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 it's difficult. Yeah. Well, look, um, I wish you well with your conference. It does sound an extremely interesting uh, program, and uh, I just hope that you get some uh, real talking points and an action and uh, out of it. Um, and just lastly, uh, somewhat more lightheartedly, I don't know whether either you or both of you watch the Clarkson Farming uh, program. Uh, so would you sort of regard him as a farming hero or or a farming fraud? I'd, I'd say he's an absolute farming hero because yes. he's given a real frank practical view of life as a farmer talking to a pair of plasterers who are doing some work for us about tram lines in fields because they'd seen <laughs> it on Clarkson's farm when he'd messed up the tram lines and so they were asking me about why how it's done and why it's done and that sort of stuff you know yeah but he's but... just he's just he's just done it to a completely different audience yeah, I think uh, Paul's hanging up a 10 sign. So uh, <laughs> 10, 10 from the uh, the Paul judge anyway. Uh, no, I think uh, I just read something by Andrew Marr, who said he learned more about farming than from any other source uh, yeah. from, from yeah, yeah. Clarkson. Um, although he apparently Clarkson himself described himself as a big pink fallible wozzock. So um, what, is that, what a sad indictment that is. Yeah, it is. One it? celebrity in the process of eight one hour TV documentaries. Mm. Yes. can raise such awareness that the quote is he's done more for British agriculture than the country file magazine's done in 30, 40 years. <laughs> absolutely. It's, absolutely. Um, Charlie's absolutely right in that. Yeah. Well, look, uh, Charlie, Paul, many, many thanks uh, for your time uh, today. Uh, most interesting. And thank you for your observations on the clip that we played uh, earlier in this uh, episode. And uh, finally, again, I wish you well with the conference and we look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you very much indeed, Chris. Thank you. Well, there you are. There's been a lot of ground covered by Dr. Lawrence Rocks, by Charlie Nicklin and by Paul Hemingway. The iAgri conference with the theme of future fuels in agriculture takes place online via Zoom on the 3rd of November. Attendance is free to iAgri members, but there is a charge of £30 for non-members, which is then waived if you decide to join iAgri. Now, full conference and registration details are on the iAgri website, which is www.iagri.org. 
So I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you so much for joining me. And this is Inside AgriTurf. Inside AgriTurf.